you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was reading tonight's passages in preparation for this sermon, my first thought was, okay, So my choices are sex or money, money or sex. I'm going to go with money. (laughs) Little did I know at that time that in addition to money, I was also going to need to say something about guns. Tonight's reading contains a conversation and a parable. Someone in the crowd calls out to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus' response makes it clear that this person has misunderstood Jesus' mission. Jesus did not come in order to be a legal expert who would settle disputes between people through his wise analysis of legal code. And Jesus doesn't see this conflict as a conflict simply about who is right and who is wrong according to the law of the land. Rather, he sees it as a conflict about greed and scarcity. So rather than a clever legal analysis, Jesus gives a warning. Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. If both brothers were willing to let go of the belief that there was never enough, then the one would be more inclined to share and the other less inclined to believe that he was being cheated. Jesus' warning should be seen as good news by both brothers because if they heed the warning, no one loses. They both win. The parable that follows this conversation illustrates the point. Now, this parable is one that always jumps out at me because it is tied to a specific memory. Several times when I was in university, I had the opportunity to see Bruce Kuhn perform his one-man show, The Gospel of Luke, in which he acts out the entire King James Version of The Gospel of Luke, word for word. And in his portrayal of this story, this rich man is Scottish. And oh, how I wish I could do a half-decent Scottish accent for you right now. Jamie can. I cannot. (laughs) So that you could get a sense of what this story sounds like that way. But even without the accent, it's just this wonderfully crafted little story. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to store my fruits. And he said, this I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. For take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. It's theatrical that lovely little line, and I'll say to my soul, soul. (laughs) It's fantastic. I mean, it's lovely, but we're meant to see this man as a fool. At no point does he credit or thank God for his abundant harvest. He assumes that everything his fields have produced belongs to him and him alone, and his only responsibility is to store up his wealth, not to share it. Which takes me to the news of the latest mass shootings in the United States. While I'm largely at a loss for what to say about the tsunami of gun violence overtaking the United States, I have a few thoughts to share with you. First, in the first 219 days of 2019, there were 250 mass shootings in the United States. 
and that is 250 too many. Second, we need to be very careful about any sense of superiority we might feel about the fact that this is happening in a foreign country, not only because that superiority does not help anyone, but also because the attitudes and beliefs that lend themselves to this kind of unimaginable horror are very present in our own country and in our own lives. So don't let a false sense of superiority drown out that reality and the work we all need to do. And third, while I don't have all the answers, or any answers really, I do believe that the attitudes and beliefs we see reflected in this parable are also at the root of why so many people are buying guns and killing people. Sadly, it doesn't require too much of an imagination to add a few lines to this parable that would read, I will build barns to store all my possessions, and I will buy guns to protect those possessions, and I will live in fear that at any moment a person whose skin color is most likely not the same color as mine, will try to take these possessions from me. And so I will place all of my safety and security in my ability to shoot them if they do. Lord, have mercy. This rich man believes that his ability to lead a good life is bound up in his ability to obtain and securely store a vast amount of goods for his own personal use. And as a result, he winds up being a total loser because he will not, in fact, simply eat, drink, and be merry, because God says to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it will be with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? What are we supposed to do with our fruits and goods? Our fruits and goods are not just reflected in our bank balances, but today I do want to spend some time talking about money. And talking about money can be a really tricky thing, which doesn't mean we should avoid doing it. It just means we tend to avoid doing it, and as a result, we're often not really good at talking about money, so we need to be prepared to feel a bit awkward and to make mistakes and to apologize when we do. One of the trickiest things about talking about money is that in our culture, money is one of the things that it's very difficult to generalize about, and as such, especially in a context like this where I'm speaking to a large room full of people and then also to our podcast audience, something that hits one of you as good news may very well feel like condemnation to another one. Yikes. And although it's hard to generalize about money, here is one thing I believe is true of all of us. For each of us, there is some area of our relationship with our money and with our stuff that can be challenged, some area where there's room for growth. And it's not going to be the same for everyone, but it's there. So what I want to do now is tell you a series of stories of places that I have seen people push into their growth edge in their relationship with money and with stuff in the hopes that one of them might spark your imagination. So when we moved into our house, the former owner left a ladder in the backyard, the kind that's perfect for cleaning out eaves troughs. And I suppose it's our ladder now, but it really doesn't feel that way because all of our neighbors use it too. It just sits in our backyard and they come and get it whenever they need it. And better yet, sometimes groups of neighbors come by and go from house to house cleaning out each other's eaves troughs together. And we borrow other things from each other as well, because it just seems silly that everyone on the block would have their own ladder, a tool that we only need like twice a year, 
when we can share. There's someone in this congregation, and don't worry, I'm not going to out you, but they pay careful attention to the times when I need to be at church for extended periods of time, Holy Week or Sundays when we have a four and a seven or when Jamie's away, and they'll text me and they'll ask me if I need any help or if they want me to bring anything, and they often slip me a power bar because they know I have not had supper. It's this incredibly generous and thoughtful act, the kind that easily goes unnoticed and the kind that makes all the difference. I have a friend who lived most of his life on social assistance, and he spent a decent portion of his life living on the streets and in homeless shelters as well. When he turned 65, he moved off of social assistance and began collecting Canada pension, and suddenly he felt rich because, although Canada pension is not a lot of money, it's still higher than what a person receives on social assistance. And not long after that, I noticed these two things. One, he began going to Tim Hortons almost every morning for a coffee. And two, every time we invited him to do things like go to a movie, his automatic response was, I can't afford to. He didn't pause. He didn't think. He just said, I can't afford to. And so after a while, we had a conversation, the kind I would not recommend having with just anyone, but the kind that makes sense within the context of the trust we had built in our relationship. And I pointed out that I noticed he always turned down our offers to go out by saying, I can't afford it. And yet it seemed to me that he probably could afford it because he was spending at least the same amount as a movie ticket each week on those coffees at Tim Hortons. And if he chose to make coffee at home, instead he could come with us. Well, to summarize a fairly long conversation, we uncovered a few things that day. For example, he didn't really like going to movies, but he loved the ritual of getting up, going for a walk, and chatting with the people at Tim Hortons. It was not just about the coffee. It was about community. It was about experience, an experience he could not recreate just by making coffee at home. The second was that it was a choice, and that was revolutionary. For the first time in a very long time, he had a small amount of disposable income, and he could choose how to spend it. He realized that whenever we asked him to go to the movies, he'd been so used to not being able to afford things like that, that he just automatically said, I can't afford to. He never stopped to think if he wanted to go to the movie or if he could, in fact, afford to. The realization that he had the power to choose was incredibly important and life-giving even though his choices were not that expansive, even though there were all, would always be things he could actually not afford. But he could choose to do what he wanted to with what he had. Since I graduated from university, I've never worked in the for-profit sector. I've always worked in not-for-profits, charities, or churches, and this has taught me an awful lot about money. I could talk for a long time about scarcity and abundance and control in the finances of not-for-profits, but I'll save that for another time or if you ever want to buy me a beer and just share a few things with you today. At the first church where I worked, the church's bookkeeper taught me a lot about church finances, and one of the key lessons I learned from her was this. Everyone tends to think that churches like ours exist because a very few rich people give a large amount of money, but that is not true. Our church exists because a lot of people with modest incomes each give a small amount of money. Our average donation is $20, not $20,000. 
And that inspired me because I realized that I thought my offering, which was very small at the time, couldn't possibly actually matter to the church. It didn't inspire me to give any more money because I couldn't afford to, but it did encourage me to think differently as I dropped my envelope in the collection plate. Since then, as I've continued to give to causes I care about, I've come to see just how important giving is, not simply because of how that money can be used by the charities I support to help other people, but because of how it has changed me, how it helps me feel like I am part of making the world a better place, and how it helps me trust that I can live on less than what I earn. Later, when I found myself running a small charity, I saw that this principle was true there as well. We sometimes got bigger donations, but we relied on the faithful people who gave 10 or 20 a month to keep the lights on. And I suspect that's true of most churches and charities, actually. I wanted to highlight this reality, and so I began to talk about our donors by describing this fictitious donor who was a reflection of our actual donors. Oma Schmidt from Plum Coulee. Oma, who prayed for us regularly and faithfully sent 10 or $20 a month from her modest pension. So when we'd purchase something we needed, we'd say, thanks, Oma. And when I'd ask people if they wanted to go for coffee with me, they'd often ask cagely, that depends, is Oma paying? (laughs) And sometimes she did, and sometimes we split the check. Oftentimes, when people donate money to charity, they try and control what the charity will do with that money by designating what the charity can do with that money, and usually by saying they can't use that money for their operating costs or budget or salaries or admin costs. It's difficult because a charity's operating budget generally describes the things they really need in order to do the work they were created to do. And paper for the photocopier might not seem like the most exciting thing to spend money on, But if you don't give your people the tools they need to do the work, how can you expect them to do the work? One time, I received a donation that came with a lovely note of encouragement and this line, use this money however you see fit. Now, I had just discovered that we needed to treat a house that seven people lived in for bedbugs. Now, I just said the word bedbugs and probably half of you shuddered, so imagine living through this. And so I used that donation to hire an exterminator, but the tremendous freedom I felt by that line, use this money however you see fit, also allowed me to use the money to buy Slurpees. Now, I feel reasonably certain that if I sent out a fundraising letter requesting money for Slurpees, I wouldn't have had donors beating down my door to meet that request, even here in the Slurpee capital of Canada. But I can tell you that beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you're working with people who are living through one of the most stressful things a person can live through, that sometimes a break from the chaos and a little bit of sugar water is exactly what is needed. I never met that donor. I'm not sure I ever will. But I will always be grateful for their choice to be both generous with their resources and to release control of them as well. Clearly, we are entering a new phase in the life of this particular church building, But for years, All Saints has operated under the belief that the things they have are not simply for their own personal use. And as a result, this church was, until very recently, the home of three church congregations and multiple charities like Agape Table. These buildings were used so regularly and so well that the church hall became so tired it literally needed to be torn down. And I think it would have been much easier for All Saints to simply tear it down and build a parking lot for the benefit of its members, or to generate some rental income, but they had this much bigger and more expansive imagination than that, a 12-story apartment building-sized imagination. So what about us? 
but about St. Benedict's table, what can we do with the fruits and goods we have? What could happen if we each, in a way that makes sense to our particular situation, chose to release control of some of our own personal resources, chose to believe that we, as a community, could do more with those resources by working together than each of us can do individually? Well, currently, it looks like being able to meet together regularly for worship, to explore fringe theater or big ideas, and then have meaningful conversations. It means that last year, as in years past, we gave away almost $18,000 to groups like Agape Table and Hand in Hand in Haiti and the Good Food Club and the Bell Tower Cafe, just to name a few. And we also gave money to help a hospital in Mali and migrant caravans in Mexico. And we told all of those groups, use this money however you see fit. What are your fruits and goods and what are you going to do with them? What are our fruits and goods, and what are we going to do with them? How can we continue to lean into abundance and resist the myth of scarcity? I can't wait to find out. In the name of our God, who abundantly creates, sustains, and redeems. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.